Hey everybody and happy new year from the Health Tech Pigeon team. We are delighted to be back. Uh, we're breaking the Health Tech news so you don't have to. Um, and we're going to be here all the way through 2024 doing so. Uh, I hope you've all had a good break. And we're going to go straight in today talking about Goldman Sachs Asset Management. They've raised $650 million for a life sciences fund. Uh, they're targeting mid-stage therapeutic companies, uh, as well as tools and diagnostic firms. They've already committed $90 million to five companies, uh, cancer drug maker Nested Therapeutics, precision medicine firm MoMA Therapeutics, Um Goldman's has raised $4 billion for its infrastructure fund uh, last year. So lots of money sloshing about for life sciences from Goldman Sachs. Uh, I think it's great to see, an overused phrase on LinkedIn, but it is great to see, I think, this um, for our space, <laughs> money flying in. Uh more money for our whole industry and our whole little ecosystem. But Hugh, uh, you've had a read of this. What do you think? Yeah, well, I'm both pleased and delighted to see this news. I think it's a really uh, positive story coming out at the beginning of 2024, not least given some of the, I, I guess it was a turbulent 2023, leading off a slight downturn in 2022. So uh, I think any signs of new investment and interest into life sciences and into health is really, really positive news. I think one thing that, that grabs me that's, that's really interesting about this one uh, you mentioned the mid-stage, but also targeting the early stage as well. And I'm I, I, mm. very happy to have a conversation with any investors out there, but I think it's quite an interesting one to see an institutional investor like this um, looking at the early stage. I think an asset management firm looking at early stage companies is, is something presumably um, that adds an extra level of, I guess, some might say risk, others might say intrigue to how they're going to spend their money. But I think overall, this is really, really positive news. And I think definitely one to watch uh, when it comes to uh, life sciences investment for 2024. I, I, I'm looking forward to understanding what, what their strategy is, what kind of companies they're going to be going in for in the long term. Yeah, I read that it was actually the largest ever first time life sciences fund, which I think is pretty cool. Technically an outsider from um, life sciences and, and health. I think you're right, Hugh, that, you know, most people start a new year with, with optimism. And I, I do actually think that there is there is good reason to be coming into 24 feeling more optimistic and, and having more optimism. And, and this is a really great indicator of that. And I think what was interesting for me as well is that I saw, I think you're right about that it's interesting that they're, they're looking into early stage. And what leapt out to me about that is actually, I think it is reflective of I guess maybe the mindset of some of the more institutional investors and the way that I know life science investors are increasingly looking to think about their investments, which was reflected in the conversation that uh, was had on stage way back in November now, which feels like, well, it was a whole year ago. Kavanaugh Health ran a breakfast event uh, ahead of the Jeffries Healthcare Conference um, and brought some really amazing investors onto the stage to talk about the turbulence at the moment in the economy and actually the impact that that was having on raising funds and the mindset of limited partners and fund managers and all of that kind of thing and, and how that was then affecting how funds were being raised and how capital was being deployed. And one of the things that one of the investors said was that actually in life sciences in particular, it, it's no bad thing to be exploring 
earlier stage companies because actually it's a long-term game in life sciences. There's no short-term payoff here. You have to be able to calculate the risk appropriately, but recognize that you're not going to get fast returns. They are long-term returns. And I think that it probably speaks to investors looking beyond where we are in this economic climate, knowing that obviously we are going to come out of this at some point. And when we do, you know, some of these companies are they need support to get there. And once they do, there's going to be some really great returns on the other side of that. So it speaks to me of optimism in that space that I think then starts filtering down into the industry, into companies themselves and and teams. But as a kind of contrasting point to that, I saw on LinkedIn this week that health tech nerds had published, they'd published a report, a prediction report on 2024 And I know that this is health tech more than it is biotech or life sciences, but I think it's an interesting point. It ultimately said that more than half of their community said that they weren't willing to invest $10,000 in digital health if they had it. And that raises the question that actually, you know, if people within the space don't feel incentivized to invest in the technologies and the solutions and the companies that we all believe are going to be transformational. Where is the incentive for external parties? And clearly, again, slightly different situation where where biotech and life science is concerned. But, you know, it's not been a great period for IPOs, even M&A and that kind of thing. And so whilst it might seem like a conflicting point, actually, I think it speaks to what I said before about this kind of long-term thinking where you know, we are going to come out of the other side and and maybe we are, you know, with that, we'll see the, the increase perhaps in more successful IPOs that companies that stay IPO'd and also, you know, a greater quantity of, of M&A. So I think an early win for 2024. I think it's an interesting point. I want to talk about what you just said there about Digital health companies, people in digital health, if they had 10 grand, wouldn't put it into digital health companies in the hope of an IPO. That is a, that, it's an interesting study to do that. And when you look at a study, you've always got to look at the methodology. Because my first reaction to that is, of course you wouldn't. If you had 10 grand and you work in digital health, I bet you haven't got much more than 10 grand. You might have 100 grand saved. You might have 200 grand saved. Even then, would you stick 10 grand into a ludicrously high-risk asset class, which is VC? Now, those that do put money into VC hoping for an IPO, or frankly, as an angel or that kind of thing, it's a certain allocation of your capital as an individual that you're going to expect pretty much to go to nothing. Like most of it is going to go to nothing, or at least you're going to give advice and all the rest of it and try and, you know, optimize for success. But even then as an angel, you're looking at one in 30 of your investments going to something. So in this model, you need 300 grand saved to even have your 10 in the hope that one, et cetera, all the rest of it. So I think it, I think it's, a, it's an interesting way of phrasing it, that people in digital health, if they had 10 grand, wouldn't stick it into digital health companies. My reaction is, of course not. It's only the people who have so much money to invest 
that they put a very small allocation of that into companies that might IPO. And therefore, it's more relevant to say if you had 100 quid, would you stick that into a company to... Of course you would, because it's going to give them the chance to get better. It's going to help the space. The other thing that I'd say is that also, when you think about the way that startups are getting invested, or even that whole model, right? If we want to change healthcare, people need to create tech companies. They need to have a huge amount of capital in the beginning because they need to get over regulatory hurdles and product development hurdles and adoption issue hurdles and all these barriers that are in place by the system. That requires those companies to raise so much money that they can then only get from angels and institutionals and VCs and all these things. Therefore, is that the right model to make healthcare better full stop? Should we be relying on tech companies raising VC money, which they can only do, by the way, if they can promise a $500 million billion exit? So now you're hoping to improve healthcare only on these types of products that you're expected to sell everywhere, because only then is your market size big enough. And healthcare is a local game quite a lot of the time. A local solution to a local problem is often what will actually solve problems. And therefore, are we assuming that only billion dollar exit potential companies are the ones that can make a difference in healthcare? No, they're not. A company can do a million of revenue and make a massive difference in a local geography. And why can't you have a thousand companies doing a million revenue making difference across the country? rather than expecting $1 billion company to go in all of those thousand locations. And therefore, is the, is the whole business model a bit messed up? Like, why is it that, well, I can tell you why, and, and to, to some extent, there are so many hurdles to jump over that you need to raise so much money in order to jump over them. So how about this? We drop barriers to entry for lots of these health tech solutions. We make it easier to become adopted. Not so much cash is then needed. You might not need to go to VC to raise the money. And the ambitions of founders in terms of scale can be lower. Is that a better way to approach things? And when you think of it in those terms, well, how about, you know, you know, 10, 20, 50K of innovate money then starts to make a lot more sense. A million of of an angel round might be the only round that you ever need to do because you can get 5 million revenue and exit for 20 or whatever it is. Like the numbers start to get less and we're less reliant on VC then because there's something messed up for me that we're expecting VC-backed companies, we're expecting IPO-able companies to make a difference in healthcare In order for that to happen, you need massive scale. And massive scale is almost impossible in healthcare because we see it because of the lack of spread across the NHS and and other systems. So I'm going to advocate for more local funding for local problems and locality companies and smaller, lots of smaller companies solving local, local problems, perhaps than expecting five $1 billion companies to come in and solve all of our healthcare problems. Um, I don't know, those those are my musings. It's a really interesting pitch. I mean, I think we could dedicate an entire episode to tearing that uh, you know, that, you know, the VC model apart and then replacing it with something that probably doesn't work either. But <laughs> someone has to administer it. 
somewhere. So the money's got to come from somewhere, even if it's local. Who and, and who's responsible for it? What are the barriers to entry that we reduce? I don't have those answers. And It's somehow preventing the need to require VC money. It's somehow that's the that's the that's what I'm thinking here in terms of like my if you go to first principles of mm. uh, my first principle thinking here is unfortunately these companies need to get VC money in order to solve all their problems and get a product to market. In doing so, they need ridiculous scale. Well, how about we reduce the amount of money they need and therefore we reduce the amount of scale they need? And then you get lots of sustainable businesses easier. Obviously, the detail in the how is uh, where the devil lies. Um, and I don't want to get into that because I don't know. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, give me, give me a few days in a retreat and I'll, I'll come back to you with a model. Our white paper is coming at the end of the month. Stay tuned. <laughs> Gonna say, Jay, you keep saying you need to book a reading week. Maybe, maybe now is an opportune time. Um, perhaps, perhaps. All right, now that we've reorganised uh, the entire economic structure of health tech, um, we're going to move on to some some other ways that we can change healthcare in twenty twenty four. A Forbes contributor called Seth Joseph uh, has written an article titled overhyped question mark digital health executives anti-predictions for healthcare in 2024 uh hugh what's in this one uh so i love this one when i saw it it's the perfect antidote to <laughs> what has been an end of 2023 beginning of 2024 mass of quite boring quite hyped predictions posts from across <laughs> health tech media and frankly a less committed pigeon would have just had the first pigeon of 2024, just a roundup of all of the roundups of people talking <laughs> about, you know, why they think AI is going to solve your health problem by the end of October. Um, no, this one's great. Uh, basically, Seth Joseph has gone and spoken to a number of primarily US health executives, to be fair, uh, about you know, everything that came out of last year or some of the hyped up things that we saw uh, across AI, VR, um, things like General Catalyst saying it's going to buy a health system, um, which, let's be fair, is still going to be a really exciting thing to watch. I think it's going to be uh, it's it's going to be good to be an observer. I'm not sure I'd want to be a part of it, but I think it's going to be uh, uh, going to be exciting. Um, yes. Yeah, so essentially, this article is looking at what isn't working, what isn't going to change in 2024, and I think. Um, so, you know, at the kind of core basis, we've got um, what's not going to change in healthcare itself, which is it's still going to be really hard to get decisions through. It's still going to be really hard to sell into healthcare, no matter what we do. Um, buying decisions are still going to take a lot of time, which is going to slow down a lot of everything that we do. Uh, there's a really, there's a really poignant uh, one-liner uh, from Sonia Milsom, CEO of Oxion, uh, who says, Health systems will remain in crisis. The scarcity of workforce and archaic nature of the workflows is at a crisis point. So everything that we've been talking about for the last several years will probably will continue to talk about in the same how do we solve that. What the article then goes on to explore with the help and contributions of some really insightful people is how we solve that or how we probably won't solve that. And top of the list is AI and VR. Um, and simply put, in the next 12 months... It's much as we've been saying, AI isn't going to solve any major problems. It's not going to help us uh, bring down the time 
it takes to do things. It's not going to solve the workforce crisis in the next 12 months. There's there's no predictions for post 2024. So, you know, we don't want to we don't want to go there. But there are definite signs of life in technology, but we may I think we'll be seeing other things pop up as the within the hype cycle and that at least for the predictions in some of this that hype cycle for AI VR is is probably coming to a sort of its downward trajectory for a bit while everyone starts sorting themselves out so I think those are the kind of key points we'll be looking at in 2024 I wonder do we think AI I mean we're going to be talking about AI every week we always do but are we going to be talking about it positively do we think you know are there other technologies that we've got our eyes on that are going to be exciting for 2024 what what's health tech bringing us from our predictions uh, or anti-predictions side of things well b- before i move on to that I, just to, just to sum up this article i i just i found this like just really funny it's it's sort of like in some ways, it's the opposite of what I'd expect of me. Well, in a lot of ways, it's the opposite of what I'd expect. You're absolutely right, Hugh, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn I haven't actually posted on LinkedIn for two, three weeks just because, like, I've just been... I've, got, I've been going on there and like scrolling down the feed and it's just like all of, the, as you say, all of these like roundups of the new, of the year and, like, everyone's reflections and learning points and all that sort of stuff. And, and like, I don't know, it, it just seemed a bit sort of homogenous on there. And this is the anti of that in so many ways, as you say, because it's just scrolling down here and just to summarize it, VR is not going to work. AI is not going to work. AI and VR together, not going to work. Bots, not going to work. Large language models aren't going to work. ChatGPT is going to crash healthcare once CFOs understand the computing cost. What's the other one? Decentralized clinical trials, they're not going to work because they're too complicated and, and people are too complicated in people's homes. So like, it's just like this, this sort of, and yeah, you're right. The word crisis is just used. I could get, this crisis is still here. It's still crisis to buy stuff. It's a crisis of workforce. It's still a crisis of everything. It's, it's just like this sort of wonderfully horrendous roundup of like everyone's really like horrible opinions, of like lack of hope. Um, and, and just someone, someone's just like collated it all into this article of just, just no, no sort of like, like no paragraph at the end that's just like, despite all of this, it's all going to be absolutely fine. Or despite this, there's some hope here. It just ends with just like, yep. And that's the final thing that's not going to work. End. It's <laughs> just like, cool. They've just lent in. They've just lent into their own pessimism and just gone. Here's here's an angle. It's all fucked. <laughs> Brilliant. So yeah, just I just thought it was quite nice. In terms of my my opinion on all of this, well, I can't say that I believe it. In all honesty, uh, I think obviously some of this is going to work, and some of this is going to work in some places, and some of this is going to work or not going to work in some places. Like I'm sure you give it twelve months, every single person that's quoted in here can claim that they're right. But what is the value of claiming that you were right betting on something not working in healthcare that could have helped a load of people? Congratulations, you weren't right. You also just contributed to a load of pessimism. You convinced a lot of people not to try. You convinced a lot of people that it wasn't worth your effort even looking into it. And like, okay, I think we can, I think realism, I'm fine with. And I think to be fair, a lot of these are, uh, are based in realism. And I think that, you know, that that is fair enough. I think that, you know, as an article, as a commentator in the healthcare space, 
as someone who wants to make the healthcare space better, I don't think you'd find me writing something so one-sidedly pessimistic without providing an alternative view. Because at the end of the day, part of, I think, well, you can argue, right? This journalist is clearly leaning on the side of finding truth in those opinions that are negative. I would want to find a more balanced truth, I guess, um, in order to then inspire people. Um, And perhaps that's just the angle that that I want to take. And perhaps there's a a place for both. But I think, yeah, I I hope that the people reading this, I hope this doesn't I hope this doesn't stifle any innovation is all I'd say from a, from a media angle and me, you know, critiquing this as a media piece. I really hope that this doesn't stifle innovation. I hope this fires people up to go, actually, I can find solutions to some of these problems that I mentioned and we can go and do something. Um, but yeah, those are my thoughts. To add my own dose of realism here, I, I think you're right. I mean, to be honest, I don't think a single article is going to deter people from wanting to to change the world. There are so many people in this industry that are here exactly for that. And I think that that is the energy that, that carries lots of us and the majority of people through. And I think people innately in, in healthcare life sciences want to solve problems and they want to solve problems at scale and make meaningful impact. My two cents on this is that i say this often but we this year we're staring down the barrel of probably two major elections in two major economies and i think that that is going to really influence how we see the year playing out well, obviously it will but what i mean is that i think that we're going to see companies struggling to get deployment at scale because there will be budgetary challenges, political challenges, whichever market you're looking in. Um, I think that this will be a year of identifying use cases and seeing technology start to mature and are starting to understand how we can best use it to solve some of these problems. And I think once we get over this political hump, Whatever that looks like, I think then we'll start to see more of this stuff being put into practice in health systems where there is confidence in the economy, in the political climate, in the in the technologies themselves. And so I actually think that this could be quite an experimental year in terms of the maturity and growth of technologies that we are kind of toying around with, we don't yet totally understand. So I think it's a really exciting time for the likes of generative AI and that kind of thing, because I think it it gives us the time and space to figure it out, truly understand it and, and be able to use it in a meaningful way that is going to have the impact that we want it to. And I know that we're seeing some great use cases for those kinds of innovative technologies, even for like VR and all of that kind of thing, how that's being used, you know, worldwide for surgery and surgery planning and all of that kind of thing. I think it's a, a year of maturation, um, which means that we can, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Start 2025 with a bang. Uh, (laughs) Not wanting to wish 2024 away because I think 2024 will be a good year. Personally, it's going to be a great year. I'm sure of it. That would be kind of my two cents. And I think you'll think this article is right in the sense that a lot of these challenges and issues are, will be pervasive through the year that Technology isn't going to solve them overnight, regardless of where we are in any political cycle, in any market. And it's not just technology that is responsible for solving it either. There are multiple factors. So 
my optimism is coming from that, that I think time and motivation and maturation is going to see us create progress, um, but maybe not the kind of progress that people running companies necessarily want to see in the sense that they just, they want to be able to scale right now. And I know that that's been frustrating for the last, you know, 12, 18 months for innovators anyway. Um, I just don't see that bit of frustration changing just yet. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, I, I choose to believe that this journalist just found these 30 health executives on a really bad day, because I think even towards the end of last year, we were starting to see really good examples, early examples of how a lot of these technologies were being used. Um, and I th- think, you know, particularly with something like large language models, where, you know, the, 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 a gap of a year from ChatGPT being released to, you know, serious, strong examples of how it could be used, one year is is tiny. So I think personal predictions, one year from now, we could be seeing some really, really very strong examples, um, hopefully at a point of scaling or yeah, being at least mature enough to to demonstrate and, and grow from that. Definitely. I think it's positive. I think this year is going to be great. I think there's going to be lots of AI large language model stuff. I think there's going to be more, uh, even to quote some of this stuff like VR stuff, I think there's going to be pockets of where these things are working and there's a lot we can do with that. So yes, thanks for your opinions. Uh, I'm going to choose to be positive. Yeah, so this next story, this is a this is an innovative one. This is a cool one. This is interesting. Uh, Warner Music Group has partnered with a British health tech startup called Medi Music, and they're helping to trial music as medicine to relieve pain, anxiety, and stress. Hugh, what's going on here? Yeah, so it's uh, it's exciting. This is Warner Music Group's first partnership with a proper healthcare company, a health tech company, uh, and essentially what they've developed is a musical drip, which is actually far more exciting than it sounds. It runs on the basis that you can help address anxiety using music, uh, which I think you know. Let's face it, we all probably knew from having you know our own enjoyable tests in music but for patients suffering from dementia uh, it's all to help relieve anxiety it's a very anxiety inducing condition and it can be quite unpredictable can be quite it could be quite helpful if you could know that it would work and in some early trials with this technology medi music the nhs has piloted this in care homes and um, for some at-home care as well so it's essentially how do patients respond when you play them a custom bespoke tailored playlist designed um, scientifically to reduce their anxiety. So the the tool takes short 20-minute playlists and essentially uses AI to understand how patients are responding to the music and essentially identifying different aspects of the piece of music. They call it the digital DNA of a piece of music, uh, which results in a fingerprint for healthcare use. It's all very scientific and healthcare based but it mm. uh, from the yeah, terminology being used but it sounds like you could essentially using you know using ai drip feed music to help relieve anxiety it's there's already been some successful pilots and it looks like they may be rolling it out even further i think this is really exciting because i 
found out about another company quite recently doing something similar called Spoke. Um, I met them through the Vantage MedTech Accelerator and saw them pitch on their, their pitch night. Ariana, who is co-CEO, was basically talking about the power of music as medicine. And what Spoke does is they do something ultimately very similar, which is curating playlists, but actually they work with musicians and composers to create bespoke pieces of music and then use that to curate these playlists as well. And then when the music gets played, those composers and musicians, they get paid for their commission, but I think they also get paid when it gets played. And so they were positioning it as the Like, what if you could have a Spotify for mental health? What if what you could listen to, whether it's a podcast or whether it's music, could have a positive impact on your health and a condition that you were living with? And going way beyond the application of, um, you know, other digital therapeutics that we know are used by the NHS, like Calm and Headspace and that kind of thing. Um, And so I think it's really interesting to see, you know, big player in music giving consideration to how they can play a role by partnering with an innovator doing something like this can have such a profound impact on somebody through whatever mechanisms that might be. And it's great that they've got, you know, data and, and science behind it to, to show that. But I think it's really exciting and I think it's very cool that there are multiple players in this space who are shooting for the same thing, but, you know, paying back to musicians as well. Um, which is very, very, very cool. Yeah, I think why not? Uh, you know, it's funny because music's been um, a huge part, actually, huge part of my was a huge part of my life through my sort of teens and twenties, and I actually I, I almost don't listen to music now because it affects me so much physiologically, because I can hear anything in the kind of dance music spectrum from house to trance to drum and bass, dubstep even, like anything in that spectrum will just elicit so much emotion in me and give me such tangibly different amounts of energy and all that sort of stuff or affect my mood so, so blatantly that harnessing that in someone like me, I think would be extremely easy. I think the AI machine learning would would learn pretty quickly that anything in the sort of 128 BPM upwards really starts to affect me. You play anything 140, which is more sort of trance music, and then all of a sudden, like, my heart rate is, like, really high, my adrenaline's peaking, like, my serotonin's flying, like, it, it would be so clear. Like, I would, I think I'd be, perfect in one of these studies to like to see the obvious effects sort of uh, exacerbated in somebody or exaggerated in somebody because you know people say that um you know we went snowboarding just now went snowboarding over christmas and uh, I'm, a, I'm a good snowboarder like i know how to get down a slope like i don't need to think too much like i i could listen to music i did it once and i listened to like a house playlist or a tech playlist and like that tech house and like I was going so much faster and my carving was so much deeper and my turns were so much like harder and like everything was just too much. It was dangerous. <laughs> it's just like snowboarding so much more dangerously just because I was like seriously affected by this sort of music. And yes, I could have listened to something a bit more chilled and that perhaps would have influenced me the other way. But the point remains like 
I'm I'm physically and physiologically affected by music in a way that could 100% be harnessed by something like this. And I think it's just an evolution of us um, as as humans will start, but also people in healthcare to realize that of course, visual stimuli can give you stress responses. Of course, auditory stimuli can do the same and indeed the opposite. Of course that makes sense. Um, and, you know, being an anesthetist and seeing and, and, you know, being appreciative of all the different things that can affect physiological changes in an anesthetic room makes me again, I think a bit more amenable to this sort of thing and knowing the, the clear potential of it. And where it's something like reducing heart rate, reducing anxiety, reducing stress, reducing circulating adrenaline and all those different things, like even, you know, comes to mind, like, why aren't we, why aren't we playing this sort of stuff in anesthetic rooms? And it's maybe because we don't know which of those mu music tracks are going to have a certain effect versus another. You don't want to elicit certain memories of a really nice and serene track. You don't want to elicit memories that are going to raise someone's heart rate. And so that that fingerprint that's been being talked about of somebody that could follow them around into that anesthetic room, perhaps where we know it's going to influence them positively. Um, I think why the heck not? Because anything can anything that can help someone reduce anxiety in that scenario is going to help the anesthetic. So um, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I really like this. I think it's... Um, I think it's a nice thing for us to be for for us to be uh, shining some light on. I think a really solid proof point to how receptive James would be to this kind of therapy is that he this it definitely has the opposite effect on him when Nuno and I participate in uh, musical theatre kitchen dance parties. Um, so I think he'd be a great candidate, James. I would. I mean, it's funny. Like I the other week. I can't remember. It was like a it was like a Thursday, I think it was, and um, I sort of accidentally started listening to Spotify in my office and just got a bit carried away. And all and all of a sudden, like I was just listening to just all sorts of like like progressive for anyone that knows house music, like progressive house. I was listening to, which is sort of like the sort of thing that would really get me up for, for a night out. And then you, you look back at my like text messages on like a week later and I'm like, geez, I was like having mania on Thursday, like almost like by like messaging my friends being like, oh my God, I'm listening to all this stuff. It's so great. And da, da, da. like, like genuinely, like that sort of response in me happens. It's, um, oh, yeah, it's definitely something to be harnessed. Um, I think with something like this, but yeah, interesting. You're not alone either. Um, you know, the studies have shown over and over again that yeah, people's response to music can uh, statistically affect them uh, across all walks of life. I mean, there's, yeah. a, there's a classic study that showed that listening to music over 120 BPM while you're driving significantly drops the quality of your driving. I can 100% believe that. Yeah, it seems surprising it's taken us this long to kind of harness it um, for this kind of therapeutic use. Well, if if anyone would like an example of uh, the kind of music that we enjoy and appreciate, search Somex and click playlists on Spotify and you can enjoy a variety of different uh, house genres there uh, and perhaps give you a window into uh, the Somex music <laughs> and tracks that frequent at least James's office um, and occasionally mm. Nuno and I's kitchen dance parties. It's a good point. Are those are those playlists searchable? I think they are, aren't they? I guess they are. Yeah, they are. 
I can recommend Somex Chilled for, for, for all the reasons you talked about today. Somex Chilled is the one that I add to the most. Uh, it is the one that I listen to the most because uh, if you were to listen to Somex Progressive, uh, you might find yourself getting ready for a night out on a Monday at lunchtime or something. So, um, yeah, Somex Chilled, that'll probably drop your heart rate. Coming soon, the Pigeon 90s hip hop playlist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I am so here for that. And finally, Zoe, the gut health company. There's been a few bits and bobs that have been flying around about Zoe recently. If you go into an M&S at the minute, you'll see that they've got a new gut health drink. Famously, they've got their company that Jessica on this podcast will know far more about than someone like me, but obviously a microbiome company that is doing lots to help optimize your health there. But there've been some critics that have come out recently. Um, There's an an article in uh, Unheard, so unheard.com. Deborah Cohen and Margaret McCartney have written an article called We Need to Talk About Zoe. How scientific is the must-have health app? There's questions around how scientific it is. There's questions around their business model currently with a lot of critics coming out on LinkedIn talking about this gut health drink in M&S and questioning like, why, why are they doing that? Like, is, is this commercially driven? Like what are the values of the company? Have they now come into question? How scientific is this drink even? Um, but obviously Zoe, very popular, lots of supporters and plenty of people who think this is all fantastic. Um, Jessica, you, I guess, live in this world a lot more than than me. Um, what, what's your take on everything that's going on at the minute with Zoe? So, full disclosure, I actually do really want to try it. I just haven't got my app together to try it. And I think it's more of a personal experiment to, to see what happens, what it does, what that process is like. Um, but also fully recognising that there is you know, not an insignificant financial investment required to go down that process. Um, and I think it, it's kind of like a, a tale of two halves, really. He's clearly, he's done some incredible things. And I think he has had some really, really great exposure. I think it's got people talking about gut health and their um, approach to just their lifestyle and, and optimizing their health in a really positive way. I think it's stimulated some really good conversations. Um, but equally, it's, it's very polarizing online and actually in the medical community I'm seeing. There mm. are some people who are incredibly supportive of it and others who are dismissive of it from a scientific and medical perspective. Some saying that actually, do we really need a personalized approach to diet at a population level when actually the the issues are far greater than that and and you know right in saying that you know it's helping people who have the most disposable income rather than the people who need it most and I understand all of those things and you know it puts a lot of pressure on on people with their approach to diet and health and should I be doing this is this something else I need to be paying for you know there's no end of supplements and particularly at this time of year you know health overhauls diet overhauls and all of that kind of thing so it can be a bit of a maze um 
And I think then there's an, another side who are incredibly supportive of it. And I think also I'm increasingly seeing that there are similar products by other companies being bought out um, that provide similar services, notwithstanding, you know, there's, I'm sure there are lots of gut focused health shots. Um, I know of many myself, I don't know how they all kind of measure up. And I think some of the big questions that are being asked, as James said, around that new partnership is that is it commercially driven or is it driven around making the greatest impact possible and is it a signal that actually these personalized high cost services are not as commercially lucrative or even viable as previously thought and therefore are partnerships like this a path to either greater profitability or revenue or whatever it might be and you know where is the data as well I think where there is a clinician involved a scientist involved I think people hold them probably to a higher account in terms of the evidence behind things and people want to see that see that they can back up the claims that they're making with scientific evidence and, and data. And obviously that's always going to be hard with a new a new product. And I do think it's important that we we listen to the criticisms of it and, and people's personal experiences that haven't been so positive as well as those who wax lyrical about it. You know, I'm I'm sure that for many people it's had huge benefit and you know it's supported by Lots of and endorsed by lots of celebrities, Davina McCall, Stephen Bartlett. But I think that, you know, there is always this question about does it widen the gap between those who are optimizing their health and those who fundamentally need to better their their health, um, but maybe don't have access to the financial resources to use something like that. And actually, it, is it a disincentive? Because is it making people like that? who feel that that's what they need in order to to improve their health, whereas actually there are some very much more simple, accessible and straightforward things that people could do before they even get to the point where they're using a continuous blood glucose monitor. I think the other thing that's important to say here, and sorry that I'm rambling, I do just find this incredibly interesting, is that there has been some criticism around use of CGMs in people who don't need them for a medical reason. And some... I've seen some claims that it is reducing the um, availability of CGMs for people with type 1 diabetes who, you know, they do have to test multiple times a day. And actually a continuous blood glucose monitor is so transformational for them rather than having to do the finger prick, you know, up to like 20 times a day, which, you know, I did a finger prick test the other day and it was so painful. Ultimately, process very stream streamlined, great. But that actual element of it was really unpleasant to have to do that 20 times a day every single day the I can only imagine how having a continuous blood glucose monitor can just change not just you know your being more convenient but your mindset you know I would just be dreading that every day and I'm sure you get used to it I'm sure you do get used to it but going from you know 20 finger pricks today to a day to I don't know how frequently you have to change them. I think it's variable. But even if you had to change it, you know, once a week, that is genuinely game-changing and life-changing for people. And I would hate to think that, um, you know, health optimization might 
actually be impacting people's ability to access the devices and healthcare support that they need to get to baseline. Um, so I think it's a, it's a tricky one. It's so multifaceted. And as I say, I'm still intrigued to try it. The one thing that is putting me off is the blue cookie um, that frankly looks horrible. Um, I'm sure tastes horrible, but apparently is fundamental to giving you some really interesting insights about your uh, your gut health and what's going on inside of your body. So my quest to understand it more, find out more about it and, and understand people's experiences of it continues. Um, I have no firm conclusions, but I'm open to, open to hearing from uh, from from everyone who has participated and has a view because I think it's important to hear. Yeah, look, I, I don't know too much about Zoe in all honesty. Um, I think, Jess, you, you're the one that's over this stuff. So I think we'll take your, your word for it in that um, it sounds like you're watching and waiting. You're somewhat on the fence. There's potential. Um, and I guess time will tell. We will see. My own reflection on this from speaking to a few people, I guess, is just there are ways that you can sound like you know about the microbiome. There are ways that you can use words, companies, individuals, we can use words that give people confidence about a certain process to do with the microbiome. You speak to others who say that we know incredibly little about the microbiome and everything is research, everything is testing. This is all theoretical and... Um, this is all kind of a lot of trial and error and a lot of guesswork. And, you know, we're, we're looking for causation and correlation and we're not quite there yet. So I think for every individual, it may well come down to anecdotally, does something like this make you feel better for, for any number of reasons? And if the answer is yes, then great. Because I don't, I, I don't know whether there's clearly people that feel better. There's clearly people that are paid to say that they feel better, to influence other people to feel better. Whether or not part of this is just being part of the club makes you feel better, it gives you a sense of community, it gives you stuff. But ultimately, like this is a it's a huge issue clearly for so many people, and so many are seeing benefit. There are also critics. As I say, time will tell. We'll see. My own stance is just that I don't know enough, and like a true scientist. I need to know more. So I'm going to leave that there. So thanks guys. Uh, it's been a good start to 2024. Uh, looking forward to everything that we're doing with this podcast this year. Um, just a reminder for people, uh, for anyone that doesn't know already, I'm doing a health tech podcast live event on the 29th of February. Um, that's at the British Film Institute near Waterloo, the BFI. Um, awesome venue. Uh, I've got two very cool guests that we're announcing very soon if you want to get in early um you can get in with a discount code that's in the pigeon newsletter this week if you want to come check that out there's going to be giveaways there's going to be merch to the value of your ticket price anyway so don't worry about getting value for money you're going to make that back just on the bag that you take home um but we're going to do some awesome stuff on stage and yeah, we're going to have a, a fun time um, and drinks afterwards with the guests too, if you want to meet them and chat to them. Otherwise, yeah, we've got loads of other stuff going on for Somex this year. Uh, we've got loads more events coming up. Um, we've got Google events. We've got all sorts of bits and bobs, but keep being subscribed to and keep reading the Health Tech Pigeon newsletter. You can get all this information there. 
yeah, we've been a little bit quiet while we're sort of prepping everything for this year, but we will be making another bang on social media and LinkedIn as we usually do coming up soon. So uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Um, Helltechpigeon.com to get the newsletter. Uh, We'll see you next week.